0: They immediately want to jump into action, and when it comes to reading books, they feel like they're not doing anything. The problem is if you just jump into action without knowing exactly what to do, you might be putting a Band-Aid over, over a wound, and it turns into a much more <laughs> infected, larger wound, right? If you, if you try to jump into action without knowing um, how to act properly, even your own heart, even drawing from contemplation, drawing from the spiritual resources that help us to act well in the world, that help us have the right motivation, the right ends, know the right action. We need all of those things. We can't just depend on ourselves to do things correctly and do things well. So when people talk about literature escapes the problems, in fact, a lot of what literature is doing is forming your soul so that you can see problems better, right? So that you can see the right action better. And you can read your own heart and motivation better, uh, especially good books. I would say there are bad books out there. So if you've read the wrong books and bad books, <laughs> then you might be turning it into an idol, which is never meant to be. Because if if you're trying to read towards piety, you're trying to not read towards escapism, but you're trying to read towards the love of God, you're going to choose different books. You're going to read them differently, and you're actually going to engage more in the world drawing out of the world.
1: Jessica Hutton Wilson is the Seaver College Scholar of Liberal Arts at Pepperdine University. She's also an author. Her book, Giving the Devil His Due, won the 2018 Christianity Today Book Award for Arts and Culture. Her 2022 book, The Scandal of Holiness, won an award of merit with Christianity Today's Book Awards as well. Her most recent book, out in March of 2023, is Reading for the Love of God, How to Read as a Spiritual Practice.
0: So every situation involving a book, you have an author and a reader and a text. And so it's like three points on a triangle and that rhetorical situation, that ART, the art of reading Mm -hmm. Dorothy L. Sayers, the mind of the maker in which she says, those three pieces also apply to the Holy spirit, Jesus as the logos and God, the author. (laughs) And so we always have that Trinity in every reading experience and if we include all three, our reading actually, the whole reading experience explodes. Like the possibilities of meaning explode in a way that's not relative, but it's fulfilling in the same way that Gospels have multiple meanings. You know, Aquinas right. tells us and Augustine tells us, be comfortable with the multiple meanings because you're reaching to a God who has more meaning than you're ever going to understand within this lifetime. That's a, that's a very freeing way of looking at it that we don't have in, in the ways that I was taught literature you know, early on, or the ways that I was even taught the Bible early on, that I think that that, that conception of a Trinitarian way of reading opens up.
1: From Mid-South Christian College in Memphis, Tennessee, you're listening to Eyes Open, a podcast about story and scripture. My name is Chase Hirston. Today I'm in conversation with Dr. Jessica Houghton wilson We talked about literature and fiction, whether or not it's something that we're supposed to wring something utilitarian out of, or instead whether it's meant to form our souls and make us into certain kinds of people that engage the world in particular ways. We talk about the relationship between reading and holiness and spiritual formation. And we talk about the Protestant tradition and its relationship to story through the years. And true to the theme of our show, this conversation is exactly at the intersection of story and scripture. Stick around. But first, this is the day, so turn up the volume and rejoice. Question of Personal Interest, which is uh, your new book that's coming out uh, thematically similar, we'll talk about this in just a minute, uh, to your most, your formerly most recent book, (laughs) both of which have something to say about reading, leading to, or being helpful in the process of becoming like Christ or pursuing holiness. And so what I'm hoping you'll say yes to is uh, if that's true, Does that give me license to consider my non-reader friends less holy than me? Because I'm really looking for a good reason to say that. Uh,
0: You know, if I can quote C.S. Lewis, Ah, C.S. Lewis says that those who uh, choose not to read have just confined themselves to a prison. Ah. And if they can be happy in a prison, but most people can't. And so a lot of the things that we struggle with, we don't realize are part of our own choices. Hmm. Right, so there's all and there's always the fix it. there's always the if you just went worked out, you would stop feeling, you know, having this existential crisis. Or if you just read books, maybe you would just feel better. Uh, but the answer, of course, is always grace. It's always Jesus. And there's resources that the kingdom has blessed us with,
1: mm-hmm. starting
0: with scripture, but then also beautiful art and beautiful music and beautiful literature and other people. And all of these are gifts of the kingdom that help us live this life that is of course always a tension between um, being the sinner and being the saint we hope to be.
1: How do you tend to encourage those who either are in too big a hurry for sort of long-form reading or those who just uh, would say that reading fiction and literature is not beneficial? Uh, Obviously they're perhaps taking a, a utilitarian approach to reading, which I know I've heard you speak on before, but are these two different people? Do you, do you address them in two different ways or do you just have a, a blanket encouragement for, for people that don't seem able or willing to fit reading into their life?
0: Yeah, I don't think I have anything blanket because I think each person is different. Okay. And I think people all come to protest reading at different points in their life. And it depends yeah. on where they're coming from that I kind of walk through that process. I know when I was teaching college and I was working a lot with undergrads who didn't want to read and and weren't excited about reading. I often would start classes going back to like what was the last book you enjoyed? Hmm. Because everyone's read something, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. So I, you know, usually I make it a much more personal encounter because if you can remember the last book that you enjoyed, the last book that did something to your heart that that engaged you, that excited you, why what was going on there and start with the experience people have more than any arguments they have against reading. Because the arguments against reading are, are rather flimsy. Uh, it has a lot more to do with preference. Other things, they can, they can pretend to argue against reading, but everyone knows reading reading helps people. <laughs> like yeah. it's, just, it's one of those things that if you, it's like working out, you can argue all day long all the reasons you don't wanna work out. But no one's gonna say working out's bad. you know you can try to say it but it really just comes down to you prioritize other things in your life other than this good why is this good become a back burner for you why is this good even in the midst of all the things you're dealing with or the suffering or the loneliness or the difficulty with parenting or the difficulty with your work and understanding your vocation why are all these questions that are pressing why are you looking for other ways to kind of solve things rather than drawing on the resources that come with reading.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. You know, oftentimes the reading of literature or fiction is um one accusation or objection leveled at it is that it's something having to do with escapism. You're hmm. you're trying to get away from X, Y, or Z. Um but you, obviously, uh, this is not your first book that argues that uh, it, it can be used as a spiritual <laughs> yeah. discipline or, or used in our spiritual formation. So how is it that you would say it helps us to live, as we say around here, eyes open, helps us to Ooh, move good. through the yeah. world um, without missing the world, without it passing us by?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Again, just going back to students, because that's probably where I've heard the most protest in my past is just, you know, I've been teaching for 15 odd years and... Uh, with students, they immediately want to jump into action. And when it comes to reading books, they feel like they're not doing anything. Yeah. The problem is if you just jump into action without knowing exactly what to do, you might be putting a Band-Aid over, over a wound and it turns into a much more <laughs> infected, larger wound, right? Yeah. If, you, if you try to jump into action without knowing um, how to act properly, even your own Heart, even drawing from contemplation, drawing from the spiritual resources that help us to act well in the world, that help us have the right motivation, the right ends, know the right action. We need all of those things. We can't just depend on ourselves to do things correctly and do things well. So when people talk about literature escapes the problems, in fact, a lot of what literature is doing is forming your soul so that you can see problems better, Mm. right? So that you can see the right action better and you can read your own heart and motivation better, Uh, especially good books. I would say there are bad books out there, and I do think that there are forms of escapism that can be accessed through books, right? I don't think it's a false accusation. So if you've read the wrong books and bad books, (laughs) then you might be turning it into an idol, which is never meant to be, which is why this book I'm writing right now is less about content and more about how you read because if, if you're trying to read towards piety, you're trying to not read towards escapism, but you're trying to read towards the love of God, you're gonna choose different books. You're gonna read them differently and you're actually gonna engage more in the world than drawing out of the world.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's good. Reminds me of Tolkien's famous words about escapism, right? If, if it's someone unjustly in prison, then escape is exactly what they need. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he likens that to our distraction, the distraction of 60, 70 years ago. So, Mm -hmm. you know, I'm sure he'd be losing his mind. (laughs) (laughs) Right, right. Um, But yeah, yeah, that it it might help prepare the sorts of people that we are as we move into action is just a a great encouragement, I think. Yeah. Um, And certainly need it. Right.
0: Well, and Tolkien and Lewis, of course, overlap. And so I quoted Lewis earlier saying that those who don't read are in their own prison, you know, that's the way Tolkien was viewing it as well. They they agreed on that, that if you're not a reader, you've actually imprisoned yourself. So reading opens the door. You said eyes open, it opens your eyes, it opens the windows to the soul, it opens the door to being able to see more. And so it's not an, it's an escape, I guess, to use Tolkien's language, it's an escape out of your own self imprisonment. Yeah. Into something bigger and better.
1: Right, yeah, and you know, also, I, as I try to think of people who would, who in my life who have said something in the ballpark of the escapism objection, these are not people who abstain from Netflix or whatever else, <laughs> whatever other like right. I'll spend all my time in this version of a story, which is fine. Yeah. You know, I mean, I, I don't think that everybody has to be a book nerd, but um, mm-hmm. I think that uh, your encouragement is is at very least uh, worthy of significant contemplation and 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 reflecting yeah. on
0: there is a huge difference between the kinds of stories that you can access via media, right? And the kinds of yeah. stories and the way you enter them with, with books. So they're both doing something, but they're not doing it at the same level that they could be.
1: Yeah. Yeah, go ahead, feel free to say more about that. Or, okay, or, and well, dive deeper.
0: <laughs> so... I, I love, I love movies. My my dad used to say that my education on Sunday nights was movies. So this was, a, we grew up in a great books house. We had a big library. We constantly read together as a family, but Sunday nights were for great movies. And so especially anything 1939, this is favorite year of movies, you know, through the sixties, <laughs> we were kind of the best movies. So I am a fan of movies and there's a lot of great discerning movie watchers, you know, I think of Alyssa Wilkinson and, and so forth yeah. who know how to read the stories well, and that's different than just eating the cotton candy of film. However, the way you're accessing it has to do a lot with passivity rather than challenge. And so it's a different workout for your mind than sitting down with a book and engaging it, having to decipher. There's multiple levels of meaning. There's multiple ways of taking words and sentences, uh, the practice of shutting yourself up and actually just like listening silently to someone mm. else rather than the overload of noise and images that can often distract us or help us escape. And it's not a positive escape all the time. Uh, mm-hmm. So it does depend on what you're feeding yourself. So I think the, the challenge with books, the selflessness that books ask of us, the invitation to reach out that books ask from us, right? Because you're, you're connecting with another person, with an author, with a character that level of connection is just different too. So so there's lots of things that, that books are doing, and I think people have recognized, you know, ever since movies have been around, there's something that books still bring to the table that is a stronger <laughs> formation than yeah. film. And and a lot of people have written about why that is.
1: Yeah. That passivity versus active participation piece is fascinating to me. I try not to be a a grumpy curmudgeon who thinks he knows everything um about anything but um i wonder as as we've seen especially in, in the protestant world as we've seen the church service become an overwhelmingly more passive experience we just sit and receive these songs that we hopefully like and sit and receive uh, a sermon i wonder what the correlation um, is between that and obviously you know mm-hmm. the, the past hour, broadly right. 60 80 years would be, I imagine there's been a, a significant downturn in reading mm. as opposed to before that, uh, that perhaps it's not all about better television coming out, better movies coming out, uh, but maybe we've gotten a lot more used to everything being a passive reception. And so, you know, everybody talks about, well, the, what the digital world is doing to our attention spans and our ability to sort of sink into a novel. I wonder how much we might also attribute, well, so much of the rest of our life, especially, uh, maybe not especially, but including in Christian circles Mm -hmm. is moving towards, moving towards the passive. And and maybe that's, um, negatively affecting our ability to, or our, our feeling like we can enter into the perhaps discomfort of let me sit and be silent. Um, it's interesting, as you said, like, shut up and listen, but it, there is still in a book, like an active participation there that's not, that's perhaps not uh, the same as, you know, watching the latest, whatever movie. Yeah,
0: Well, you're really which, listening. I mean, you were talking about having your eyes wide open, which is very scriptural, right? Having eyes to see and ears to hear. Uh-huh. Um, Eugene Peterson talked about it being uh, God-blessed eyes and God-blessed ears, right? Those are the ears and eyes of a saint, those who are actually open. So when it comes to reading a book, if if there's something scandalous in the book or there's something that causes discomfort or challenges you, you might reread it. Like, did I just see that? Yeah. What did that just say? I might read it out loud. I might talk about it with the person next to me. Like, did you just, is that is that how you read that? How would you, versus if you watch something and somebody says something scandalous, you're always like, you're onto the next scene. Like there's no yeah. pause. You just move on from anything that bothers you and it might be affecting you and you don't even know that it's forming your soul in a certain way versus the participatory, like, it, I'm going to dialogue with this. I'm going to go deeper with this. I'm going to think through what just challenged me as I'm listening to it. Yeah. Um, and that happens more with books because of the pace, because of the uh, the nature of words and verbal versus images.
1: Yeah, oh, man, it's so many, so many <laughs> thoughts. I just want to spend a long time thinking further about that's it's all very fascinating. Um, well well tell us about uh, a little more um, about the new book it's coming in March of this year reading for the love of God um I don't want to say give us the elevator pitch because it's yeah. about it's about not having to <laughs> make everything bite-sized right. but um, right. I wonder if you can tell readers a bit about what you're up to and I, I also wonder um, again so just a year ago you put out the scandal of holiness which mm-hmm. is is similar um, insofar as it's about reading and the relationship between reading and holiness. So tell us about reading for the love of God. And if you can also tell me how how do you think about uh, the relationship of these two books or the project that you're that you're getting at in these two books?
0: Sure. Well, this and I'll start with the previous one. So the scandal of holiness was a project that I started thinking through the idea for in about 2013, 2014, when I was teaching these characters in literature that were pursuing these wildly holy lives. And of course their life looked nothing like mine, but I love Jesus. I wanna follow Jesus. What am I doing that is just too safe and too domesticated and not enough about giving up everything for the gospels? What would it look like to really follow him? And so it was an investigation into some of these characters, getting to know these friends. So very specific people that I was meeting in, in literature and what they were showing me and teaching me about God. So it wasn't really a defense about how to do that or why I was doing that <laughs> or what even the process looked like to write this kind of book. Instead, it was just, look at these people, look at these friends we could have alongside us so we're not on this journey towards holiness alone. We don't have to have the same faith that is cultural Christianity. We could have something better and more exciting and God is inviting us into, into that and look at this company he's already invited that, that went ahead of us. So that's what that book was doing as i was writing that book i i was hearing a lot of questions from people about i read the same book you did i didn't get that like Mm, (laughs) like that i didn't see that that you just saw how did you do that and i realized my train you know my training is that i have a phd in theology and literature so they're combined and there's two separate camps you have great theologians who understand the the history of the church. They understand doctrine. They understand probably philosophy a lot better than I do. And and then you have those who are in the literary circles and they don't read anything theologically, right? Or, you know, rarely, and they're not talking to one another. And so my background allowed me to see, okay, this is how you can take your ways of reading the Bible and it can actually enhance your ways of reading literature and vice versa. The things I've learned in the world of literature, how to read stories, how to read poetry how to read art are ways of understanding how to see God in the world, right? How to see God in scripture better. And so I just took the two sides of it and showed people, essentially I pulled back the curtain on what I did in the scandal of holiness. This is how I read. And this is where it comes from. It's not just, this is the way Jessica reads. This is how Augustine read and how Julian of Norwich read and how Dorothy L. Sayers read and how C.S. Lewis read. And let me show you what it was that they were doing so that you can do it too with any other book, that you that you come across especially starting first and foremost with the bible but then going from there what other pieces of literature could you read where you were always looking for god and how god was at work
1: so then with reading for the love of god do you consider it like i've i've zoomed i've looked at the particulars now i'm zooming out to talk about sort of the theory more the theoretical realm behind how i
0: read yeah it's definitely a how-to and i think in the first vision of it it was supposed to be more like a alan jacobs like how to think right? Mm -hmm. You know, something that was like a more small, like Andy Crouch's um, The Tech Wise World, just something small. This is how to do this, how to have a tech-free life, how to have um, a life of the mind. And instead, this one was going to be how to read as a Christian kind of. And uh, what I found is just my penchant for looking at people was so strong. I ended up writing these huge sections on how to read exactly like Augustine, how to read like Frederick Douglass. And so when I would investigate who are the people that show us these how-to tips, the how-to manual also just turned into a a fuller picture. So the chapters in between are all about how-to and all of them are questions. So it's not as didactic of a how-to. Everything is what kind of reader are you? Why read anything but the Bible? Do good books make a good person? What does the Trinity have to do with reading? Why do you need four senses to read? How do you remember what you read? And I just kind of go through these questions that I assume people are asking about how to read, and then show people how to do that.
1: Yeah, your PhD, being theology and literature, is is about as close to the center of my wheelhouse of interest uh, <laughs> as could be. So, uh, because of that, could you give us a little bit about the Trinity and reading chapter? Could you jump in a little there?
0: About the Trinity, yeah. Yeah. So I I. I start with looking at Aristotle, actually, (laughs) and (laughs) I begin with literary theory of looking at the rhetorical situation, so every situation involving a book, um, and this actually can be applied more broadly than just books, and I I do that, but you have an author and a reader and a text, and so it's kind of three points on a triangle for Aristotle, so when he's thinking about your rhetorician and there's the text, the logos, and then you have an audience. And what are the ways in which you can appeal appeal to that audience? What's the ways in which you can move them? How can you justify yourself, your ethos as an author? And that rhetorical situation, that ART, the art of reading, Hmm. I then baptized with Dorothy L. Sayers, the mind of the maker, in which she says those three pieces also apply to the Holy Spirit, Jesus as the logos and God, yeah, the yeah. author. <laughs> and so Super. we always have that Trinity in every reading experience. So she takes something without even explicitly saying it. So I guess what I'm doing is showing that it's an explicit connection between what Aristotle did and what Dorothy L. Sayers did. In every reading experience, we kind of have to play out that perichoretic dance that the Trinity is always yeah. doing between yeah. what we're reading and who's speaking to us and what the text says. And too often, at least in literature circles, we have learned how to read with emphasis only on one of them. So it's been yeah. only the text, right? The close readers, the new critics, the, the formalist. What does the text say? And that's all you have to go on. Or you have reader response theory. It can mean whatever you want it to mean, and whatever you feel, <laughs> and whatever you feel like reading, and whatever that word connotes to you, that's all that matters. Um, or author, you have to know what the author intended. If the author intent- didn't intend that, that's not there. Cross it off your list. And instead, the Trinity is a much more free playing game with those three pieces in which they all work together. It's a dance. It's a triangle. Nothing is hierarchical there. It's all together part of the reading experience. And if we include all three, our reading actually, the whole reading experience explodes, like the possibilities of meaning explode in a way that's not relative, but it's fulfilling in the same way that gospels have multiple meanings. You know, Aquinas mm. tells us and Augustine tells us, be comfortable with the multiple meanings because you're reaching to a God who has more meaning than you're ever going to understand within this lifetime. That's a, it's a very freeing way of looking at it that we don't have in, in the ways that I was taught literature, you know, early on, or the ways that I was even taught the Bible early on, that I think that, that, that conception of a Trinitarian way of reading opens up.
1: Yeah, gosh. That's that's fantastic. Um,
0: (laughs) Well, I'm sure my publisher is thinking, like, did you just read your whole chapter to this podcast? (laughs) Yeah,
1: yeah. Uh, as you talk about the world of putting theology and literature in conversation so often um, when I read theologians, uh, I'm not the first to say this, so I say this with humility. It is it is a noticeable thing that many theologians are many sort of just Christian writers are more just trying to get the information from their head and word processor to you. And it seems like there's not a whole lot of concern about the aesthetics of their communication Hmm. or about, you know, writing. I heard one, one say, uh, we have the most true message in the world. And if truth, goodness and beauty go together, then we ought to be communicating our Mm -hmm. truth with beauty. So, um, Maybe this puts you on the spot and I apologize, but are there any anyone sort of more in the theology, more theologian camp uh, in your reading that you think are are doing a good job of writing Hmm. with beauty or or even just trying to communicate the, the theology while also commending beauty to the reader?
0: wow i you know everyone i'm thinking of is dead (laughs) so it's so (laughs) unfortunate um but i I did warn you i read a lot of dead people because you know flannery o'connor conveys truth in a way that is winsome and beautiful and I I could read all persons out loud. Dorothy L. Sayers is the same. I always want to quote and put her on bumper stickers. I mean, she just, (laughs) she ends up writing in such a way that the words come alive on the page. You can hear her voice. You know, it's, if you read a Dorothy L. Sayers essay aloud or a Flannery O'Connor out loud, you start, you start talking like them. Like you can actually hear their voice at that same level, right? Because they communicate their prose so strongly. Um, I can't think of living people, which is yeah. probably not true. Um, it's just that the dead people have—they have, they have a stronger hold in me. Oh, I yeah. was about to mention someone. But he's also dead, Ivan Illich, which is a great. Uh huh. <laughs> he was a great writer. He's one of those well, word, I, like I mean... that I could taste. <laughs>
1: Very, very recently passed uh, Eugene Peterson comes comes to mind. Us, I know, very good for it's this, so but good. that's not getting you off the hook.
0: Of, I know, of looking for a dead. living author. I know, and I love you. <laughs> I would say the same thing. Eugene Peterson would be one of those Stratford Caldecott also passed away. Yeah, Roger up. Scruton. Um, so, what kind of legacy are we showing that I can't find of someone um, who writes in that same beautiful way? And it doesn't mean that it's not great. Like I'm looking at all my theology shelf right now, but it's yeah. You know, there's plenty of good messages and lots of good news, but I am struggling to look at the shelf and think of somebody that I would pick up off the shelf right now and read because the sentences carry me yeah. away. So that's unfortunate.
1: Well, <laughs> it is. I, maybe the, the fault is shared, though, because I, again, I, with all the humility I can muster, like I, it has been my experience, at least, with my limited amount of reading and exposure, that it is. I mean, a much smaller camp of, yeah. of people trying to communicate theology with beauty and and mm-hmm. paying careful attention to their to their prose. Which, you know, there's not been a lot of demand. When academics, you know, this when academics mm. are writing to academics, then usually like we don't want any of that right. <laughs> fluffy stuff, right? right. Just give right. us the A plus B equals C. Um, but I think I've got a I've got a some abstract thoughts I'm going to try to get into a coherent question um, related to that but let me let me give that another second to percolate um, in my brain and let me uh, let's do a quick what I call thunder round um, which is very similar one might say to a lightning round in another context but rather than trying to pressure our guests to answer at the speed of lightning um, and thinking instead of how thunder can sometimes come rolling in at its own pace and sometimes is <laughs> a quick clap. Um, I'll give you just a, a few, a brief scattered shower of questions that uh, okay. I ask you to answer at your most medium speed. So um, with the first one, let me let me give you a few names and then I'll get to the questions. So okay. Jessica Hooten-Wilson, Gene um, Edward Vaith, Jen Pollock-Michelle, Tish Harrison-Warren, uh, Karen Swallow-Prior, David Lyle-Jeffrey. What is the relationship? Is it correlation or causation between literary and communicative brilliance and using all three names? Because <laughs> I, I think of so many of you who um, are, have, are not only communicating great <laughs> ideas, but communicating them in very accessible and often beautiful ways. Uh, is its it, is it that people who are predisposed to communicate this brilliance also tend to be the sort of people that use all three names or does using all three names sort of unlock something in your communicative ability? (laughs)
0: That's so funny. Um, (laughs) I can, that is really good. Um, (laughs) I can I mean, I can tell you for the women, it's mostly we just wanted to hold on to both of our identities at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, (laughs) David, it's definitely he caused me to be the person I am. I I tell him all the time that I'm just writing footnotes to everything he ever did
1: um,
0: because he was one of my teachers. Yeah. So
1: what a compliment to get. That's great.
0: Yeah, you know, when I was when I was trying to figure out publishing names, which would have been pff, 2009, maybe? 2010 when I first started writing. And I felt like I, in order to be taken seriously, I would have to do something like T.S. Eliot, C.S. Lewis, Lewis J.R. Mm-hmm. Tolkien. Like, I'd have to go with just initials, and that way nobody would know my yeah. name, right? I could just do J.H. Wilson, and you wouldn't know if it was a guy or a girl, and you could just buy the book. Um, and then I just went the braver route, and was like, no, I'm going to... I'm going to just put Jessica and there's going to be no doubt that this is written by a woman. (laughs) Either get excited or don't buy the book, but I'm just going to put it out there. Yeah. So.
1: No, that's great. Um,
0: (laughs) um, What
1: about you, as you've already drawn attention to, are are often in the world of authors who have passed on. Um, I know you spend a lot of time, centuries behind us. So who are some of your favorite living authors?
0: Yeah. So you were talking about this sentence thing. I can't think of theologians off the top of my head that write these yeah. amazing sentences. Um, there are some theologians where I will just buy their book every time because I just always mm. grow from them. So that's Hans Borsma. Um, oh, yeah. A writer who I think of who writes beautifully is not a theologian is Clint Smith, How the Word Was oh, Passed. Yeah. That is lyrically gorgeous. He's, he's incredible. He's yeah, got background
1: just, as a in in spoken word poetry, right?
0: Yeah, so I just bought his collection of poetry, which comes out uh, this month or next month, I think. But it, yeah, so it's a poet writing history, so it just doesn't get a whole lot better than that. It's just really beautiful work. Um, so those, I, I think, those are my favorite. Karen, Karen always blows me away because <laughs> I always. I underestimate her and I shouldn't because I've just, you know, I've known her her and her work for such a long time, but I'm always like, oh, that biography about Hannah Moore, I've studied Hannah Moore, I'm going to get nothing out of that, and then I'm like, oh my goodness, this is so good, (laughs) or on Reading Well, I'm like, I'm writing about reading books, like I know how to read books. (laughs) And then it's just amazing. So um, I recently read her evangelical imagination to endorse it. And I was just like, how is this so good? (laughs)
1: Again? You did it again?
0: (laughs) So I can't get enough of her. Um, Beth Allison Barr, I would say the same. I'm really looking forward to. Yeah. Yeah, again, another (laughs) three-name person. Um, But I'm looking forward to her next book. I think she just, she makes lots of paradigm shifts for people. So I get excited um, Mm -hmm. about what she puts out there. Some some that I'm less challenged by, but I recommend to everybody because we, we had similar training, so we're like in the same zone, but I'm always so excited when they put something out because I hope that like more more and more people are gonna join this friendship that we have. Um, like Alan Noble, um Yeah. yeah. Justin Errol Bailey, three names. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, <laughs> these are, I mean, to share some more, of course, these are just people Esau McCallie, Macaulay who are just writing oh, yeah. really great stuff that I just can't get enough of. Um, yeah. so probably some yeah. of my favorite living people.
1: Good. Yeah. I like so many of the same, same people as well. Okay. <laughs> um, and yeah, you can see a lot of overlap between what you guys are all up to. Um, yeah. That's cool. Um, you know, okay, this is totally self-interested. Um maybe one or two listeners out there might care. Um an author you didn't ask, but if you did, my favorite <laughs> one yeah. of my favorite living authors of fiction. Have you read any of Tana French's work? No. She isn't she's an Irish American author. Um I think she's like woefully underread and under considered in a in sort of these thoughtful ways. Yeah. Um so
0: i didn't even i didn 't even list any literary writers I was writing I was listing like <laughs> well
1: i 'd been asking about the other <laughs> I That's know I was
0: listing all the people who are doing what i 'm doing i didn 't think about yeah um, the people we work on again, I read mostly dead people yeah <laughs> but i do I do occasionally read live authors like Eugene Vodaloshka and I read everything he puts out um, okay so all
1: right you make your way with words you 're in the world of words so much. I wonder, do you have a least favorite word? And I don't mean like what's the most crass or, or nasty word, but right. is there a word for aesthetic reasons or, or others that you just you just don't like at all? What's the worst word?
0: Yeah, the, <laughs> the one that comes to mind quickest is probably because I just tweeted about it like a few weeks ago because it bothered me. Impact. I'm really tired oh, yeah. of the word impact. Um, you know, when I, I think it's because I got ruined in grad school. My dissertation director, Ralph Wood would always say, like, don't use the word impact unless you're talking about a car crash or a blocked colon. Mm. And so that's what it connotes to me. Um, <laughs> so whenever yeah. people are trying to get money from me in December at the end of the year and it's all these market, you could uh-huh. make an impact, you could make an impact. I get so grossed out by the constant use of the <laughs> word that I'm just like, you get zero money from me yeah. because you use the word impact. <sighs>
1: That's funny. I'm not looking to make any impact in the world. No.
0: <laughs> I don't I don't want to make an impact.
1: <laughs> That's funny. Mine is the word that me describes a person who cannot be made tired. Uh in, I don't even know if I pronounce it right, but indefatigable. Indif, indefatigable. It's, it's 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 like it's got one too many syllables. I just I can't stand it. Something is not right. Why can't we say unfatigable? It seems simple. Oh my gosh, similar. that's awesome.
0: Well, <laughs> I actually, I, I use that word because I tell my son all the time, you're indefatigable.
1: And he loves it?
0: Uh, he just likes knowing that he's indefatigable. Like he just likes saying <laughs> yeah, it, cool. I think. He's yeah, like, yeah. I'm indefatigable. He's eight, you know? So he's just like, that's that's yeah. what I am.
1: <laughs> I am this very large. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's great. Okay. Um, thank you. Great. That was lots of good insight there um all right so here's here's my attempt to to make some coherence out of uh these thoughts we talked about academics writing to academics um when i look at uh brazos press who's who's publishing reading for the love of god as well as scandal of holiness i think they're up to something in finding you guys who are deep in the world of of academics yet doing this very very good job of communicating to non-academics and academics included, but, you know, in a you're taking such beautiful, uh, beautifully deep ideas and making them accessible. I think of uh, one of your Brazos colleagues, James K.A. Smith, is, mm-hmm. you know, just so far in the deep end of, of academics, yet uh, his, I think he recently said he considers them a trilogy, uh, his, mm-hmm. his Brazos books of uh, You Are What You Love, um, On the Road to St. Augustine, and then his newest How to It Time. I, so I think of the two of you as as doing something similar and communicating to non-academics uh, so well. So um, beyond the simple fact that Brazos were the ones that said, yes, we'd like to sign a contract and publish your works, yeah. uh, is, there, is there more to say about why Brazos? Why did they seem like the right fit for these these books you're working on?
0: Yeah, no, I think it's actually a valid question because I definitely had other publishers lined up. So it was a matter of choosing your tribe in some ways. Mm -hmm. And so I did purposefully choose Brazos for that reason. So my first four books are all academic. They're university presses. And so I was writing only for academics. And Baker has an academic line. I mean, when I first had conversations with them, they assumed my, my next book would be an academic book and should I go this academic route? And so I was just very insistent, I want to write for the church. Like, if I need mm-hmm. to learn how to do that better and better. So, you know, I, I even took a Collegeville Institute with Lauren Winter. Like, how do I move oh, wow. from my academic voice to write this book for the church? Because with The Scandal of Holiness, you could easily conceptualize that as a academic title. I could have written mm-hmm. monographs about literary criticism and, like, why you would read this great literature. But I purposefully chose accessible 21st century and 20th century novels to say like the church needs to know about great books, like <laughs> the church needs yeah. to be reading good literature that they can access and have fun with and enjoy, and uh, and we're supposed to be doing that, I think as Christians, be people of the book more and more. So Brazos was willing to do that, um, and and that's that's definitely why I went the direction that I did. Is is how do you write for the church with the intellectual resources you've received from the academy? Yeah.
1: Yeah. I think they do that so well. And I, those of you that are writing with them, I think you're doing an excellent job. So, yeah. uh, you know, many, there's a lot of gratitude to, to pass along um, from me as a reader and many <laughs> other readers, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> um, I've heard you mention uh, in, in other interviews, you look at the authors that you're most often writing about and commending uh, who are sort of plumbing the depths of the Christian life or simply the human condition um you've you've pointed out that you're often having to go to Roman Catholics or or Eastern Orthodox writers there's simply not uh, a whole lot of Protestants writing in the same ways or, or for the same in the same realms let's say mm. as uh, as a lot of the authors you're you're often dealing with do you have thoughts on where are the you know, Others have pointed out that there's not a a great history of Protestant art like there was prior to the Reformation. So do you have thoughts on where are all the Protestants who are thinking deeply and communicating with Mm. beauty and and even in the world of fiction and literature, like what's, why, where are the Protestants?
0: (laughs) Right, right. Yeah, you know, again, this is where I feel like Karen Swallow Pryor is a, a good voice here, too, because she her next book, Evangelical Imagination, starts about 300 years ago. You know, It, start, it actually starts with Bunyan, so maybe 400 years ago, mm-hmm. and walks through what kind of culture is produced by evangelicalism versus a Catholic church or Orthodox or okay. something with this longstanding tradition, with this idea of saints, with this idea of stories being valuable with this idea of art being valuable, that the Christian enterprise could be artistic, that you don't just have to be a minister or an evangelical, like you don't have to go out and proselytize to be a missionary, you can do it through literature. We just didn't we just didn't have that. And the Catholic faith had it for hundreds of years that poetry was theology, right? Mm-hmm. And yeah. that we, we would wanna tell the stories of the saints because we're storied creatures and therefore you could write this kind of storytelling method or the storytelling mode that was valuable to the church that we just didn't have. Now, on the other side, the Protestant tradition opened up fiction as a place where you didn't have to tell a true story about a saint. You could make one up and make it yeah. come alive in a different way. And, um, the fictional enterprise really looked interior to the, what was personally happening for the believer and made that of such a strong value that we have the, the rise of the novel. Genre-wise, right? Yeah. So the Protestant Protestant theology also opened doors artistically that we should take more advantage of, but our theology has had to catch up to validating that door that we opened, right? That it doesn't have to just be a self-serving door. It doesn't even have to be straight allegory like Bunyan. Um, it can actually be a place where like Wendell Berry uses it really well, um, Leif Anger uses the novel well <laughs> yeah. as a genre. So there yeah. are Protestants who are, who are catching up and showcasing this. It's just few and far between. Uh, and I think it has a lot to do with the way our churches are. If you don't have a church that has stained glass windows, right. That, that shows yeah. beauty of the saints. If you don't have a church in which storytelling is, is central to what you're doing, where you have book clubs, where you have people reading poetry and services, it's going to be much harder for the artists that are in your midst to feel like the church is somewhere that they belong and that their mission for the church could be to use their mm. art well. Instead, you're gonna have, I mean, I love Lilius Trotter. I was just talking about her with a friend cause I just read uh, Russ Ramsey's Rembrandt in the Wind. Oh, yeah. He ends with the story of Lilius Trotter, but her story haunts me because as a Protestant, John Ruskin named her one of the, like soon to be the next great artists. This is in the midst of like Gauguin and Van Gogh and he wasn't picking them. He was picking Lilius Trotter, right? So it's just crazy. And she gave it up to go do mission work in Algeria for 40 years because she felt like that if you're going to give everything to God, that meant giving up something you were really good at, like art to do mission work. Look at all the beauty. Look mm. at all the good she did. Like, it's wonderful. And it's also really conflicting because as we want her art too, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know? Um, oh, yeah. And I feel like there, there could be a lot of that that goes missing uh, and that we just don't have artists... Feeling like there's a place for them at the table when it comes to the church, and that their work will be celebrated as as a good for the church in the same way. Yeah,
1: oh, that is a, a conflicting um, thing to think about. Yeah, because I guess you do get some who are like, "Oh, well, I need to I need to make art as a Christian," but then it ends. You know, what they they just allegorize. You mm-hmm. know, I don't know. I don't. They make again, messages like more than. Yeah, yeah, it's just, it's a, it's a, some fictional characters around this tract that I wanted to knock on your door and tell you anyways, Right. Um, which is, you know, may the Lord move however he chooses to. And that's mm-hmm. great. But um, you do wonder like that, that doesn't quite seem like the answer one might be hoping for Right. Uh, in this situation as well. Yeah. Okay. Well, you've given me about 13 things to think about for a, a few hours <laughs> um, that I'll have to uh, reflect more on. So. Thank you for your time. Yeah. Thank you yeah. for your thoughtful answers. Um, March, t- what's, the, I forget the date in March?
0: That March we 28th is when the book comes 28th. out. 28th, mm-hmm.
1: which is right at a year after Scandal of Holiness, right? I
0: know, and the next <laughs> the next one will come out March in 2024. Oh, wow. <laughs> so just spacing Great. them out a year at a time.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, so. um, we'll make sure to post a link for that for the pre-order and uh, make sure our listeners get pointed in the right direction. So Thank you so much. Um, Yeah, we will uh, talk to you again soon, hopefully. Maybe see you next time.
0: Thanks. These are great questions.
1: Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Eyes Open is a production of Mid-South Christian College in Memphis, Tennessee. You can apply now or learn more at midsouthchristian.edu. Today's music is This Is The Day by So and Tether. Come back next week for another great interview about story and scripture. We'll look forward to seeing you then. Blessings.